Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. The name Ted Naiman may seem familiar to you because this is actually an encore episode. Every so often, I'm going to start resharing some of the Health Investment Podcast's best, most popular episodes so that they don't get lost in the shuffle. I don't know about you, but I pick up something new every time I reread a book or rewatch a movie or re-listen to a podcast episode. And since it's so incredibly important to eat enough protein, this episode is definitely worth a re-listen. In case you've forgotten who the esteemed Dr. Ted Naiman is... He's a board-certified family medicine physician in the Department of Primary Care at a leading major medical center in Seattle. Dr. Naiman's personal research and medical practice are focused on the practical implementation of diet and exercise for health optimization. He's the author of The P.E. Diet. In the episode, Dr. Naiman shares why protein is the most important macronutrient to get right how to set up your meals so that you eat enough protein, why he changed his thoughts on diet soda, and more. But before we get to this best of episode, I want to share one of my favorite companies with you, Dry Farm Wines. Have you ever noticed that there aren't ingredients or nutrition facts labels on most alcoholic beverages? That's because alcohol manufacturers aren't required to post these labels. And that's also how winemakers are able to sneak sugar and other additives into their products. Fortunately, Dry Farm Wines has come to the rescue. Their natural wines are lab-tested to ensure they're sugar-free and lower in sulfites and alcohol. But that's not all. Every single bottle of Dry Farm wine is also made with organic grapes, free from all industrial additives, and fermented with 100% wild native yeast. Since I've grown accustomed to drinking natural wines, even the top-rated, expensive, conventional wines give me headaches and just make me feel gross. If you've never tried Dry Farm wines, you're going to be immediately hooked by two things— First of all, they're outstanding products, and secondly, they're incredible customer service. I honestly don't think I've ever interacted with employees who are kinder or more helpful than the ones who work at Dry Farm Wines. To get a bottle of natural wine for a penny, visit dryfarmwines.com slash thehealthinvestment, or just click through the link in the show notes. One more thing. If you've been on a weight loss roller coaster for years, trying everything from cutting out carbs and sugar to counting points, macros, and calories to buying expensive gym equipment to having stronger willpower, but nothing has worked, I have some good news for you. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work with clients one-on-one and also through my monthly membership to help you lose those pesky pounds without tracking every bite or restricting foods you love. When you work with me, you'll finally learn how to lose 5, 10, 20, even 50 pounds for the last time, develop lifelong habits that work for you, and feel completely in control around all foods. To learn more, visit thehealthinvestment.com or connect with me on Instagram at The Health Investment. And please don't hesitate to reach out if you have any questions about my one-on-one coaching program or monthly membership. I would love to hear from you. All right, it's time to hear from Dr. Naiman again. (laughs) Enjoy. I'm Brooke Simonson certified nutrition coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips 
so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Dr. Naiman. Thank you so, so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. I was just mentioning off air that I'm a big fan of yours and I've been following your work and kind of tracing you all over the internet. So it's great to have the opportunity to finally talk to you one-on-one. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to talk to you. Can you explain your background for everyone and specifically what led you to become a board-certified family medicine physician? Well, sure. I I have a mechanical engineering undergrad degree, and I wanted to work in aerospace, uh, maybe for Boeing. I'm up here in Seattle, and uh, for whatever reason, Boeing laid off a whole bunch of uh, engineers the year I got out of school. And so just on a whim, I applied to medical school, which is a little bit crazy since I didn't really, hadn't really wanted to be a doctor, and I never even, I never even really finished general biology. But uh, for some reason, medical school admissions committees add a whole point to your GPA if you have an engineering degree. So uh, next thing you know, I was in medical school. And uh, then in, in medical school, I kind of enjoyed every single field I did. I really liked it all. And I, I didn't want to pick a, a specialty where I could only just see one thing for the rest of my career because I was so interested in all of it. So I just wanted whatever would allow me the the widest um, uh, range of things that I could see going forward. So I just picked primary care because I figured, oh, hey, I can see everything when I do that. So next thing you know, I'm a board certified primary care uh, family medicine doctor. And here I am 20 years later, 20 years in practice. Wow. So what does your practice look like now? Do you work, you know, do you have your own practice or do you work at a bigger... Oh, no, I just punch a clock for one of the largest multi-specialty uh, hospital groups here in Seattle. And uh, they've just divided doctors into, you know, inpatient only or outpatient only. And so I work in one of their uh, outpatient satellites and I just have a basically a perfectly normal slice of the population as my uh, clients. And so it's just standard straight up primary care uh, medicine that I'm doing. Mm. I interviewed another family medicine doctor. I find it really interesting. And she went into it kind of for the same reasons as you did. She was really connected to her primary care family physician growing up and kind of just loved that idea. But she was talking a lot about how it can be tough to not have a, a lot of time with patients. And she actually just got a new job where she has more time. I'm just curious, have you found that to be the case at all? Or do you feel like you can actually kind of take the time you need with patients. Oh, yeah. No, the time is an issue. Like, I'm just extremely uh, limited uh, when it comes to, like, they basically dictate how much time I can spend with the patient. And it's probably never enough, you know. So you do have this constant feel that you just don't have enough time for every patient, every issue, every visit. And it's just a constraint you have to kind of try to work around. It's not it's not optimal. <laughs> right. I'm sure, you know, it's like with every profession, there's always going to be things that can use improvement. Right. It's still a good job, so I don't complain a whole heck of a lot. Yeah, well, that's good. <laughs> I always also like to ask uh, medical doctors when they come on their experience with nutrition education in med school. Did you get a lot of nutrition? I know we're going to talk a lot about nutrition today, but is that where you originally became interested in it or did that kind of come later? Oh, definitely not. I was not interested in nutrition in medical school and I had very little training in nutrition. Um, It's interesting that I went to Loma Linda University uh, Medical School, which is famous for just being the biggest plant-based mecca in the U.S. in one of the famous blue zones where everyone's eating this plant-based diet. So there was a huge focus on diet at the institution. And even there, I got almost no education in nutrition. What little education I got was extremely 
uh, technical details of formulating parenteral nutrition. That's basically where you feed someone through an IV when they're in the ICU. Um, so tube feedings, parenteral nutrition, IV nutrition, that was most of the focus. I did get quite a bit of education in that, um, which uh, is exactly 100% useless mm-hmm. in a primary care setting. But right. uh, yeah, so very, very little, surprisingly. And that's not where I became interested in diet. When did you become interested in diet? Well, I think it was really um, in my internship when I uh, uh, I was uh, I encountered a patient who had used an Atkins diet to lose a whole bunch of weight and really reverse his diabetes, and that was something I had not previously seen. And I was so blown away by that that I ended up being really interested in the effects of macronutrient composition on diet and health, and that's kind of what got me into the whole research, uh, dietary research realm. And that's kind of been a little bit of a hobby that translates over to my everyday job for the past 20 years. Hmm. Did you ever try the plant-based way when you were in med school? Is that something that a lot of your, you know, colleagues were doing because you were Oh yes, yes. Melinda? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I was raised a, a Seventh-day Adventist, and mm. so most of them are vegetarian. And so I did have a vegetarian background, and I went to a lot of Adventist schools. And I was a vegetarian for probably a total of about 20 years of my life, including my um, time at Loma Linda, because obviously they, you know, you're eating in the cafeteria most of the time because you're, you know, working 25 hours a day. And uh, so I definitely was eating uh, what most would call a plant-based vegetarian diet throughout that period of time. And uh, I never felt that my health or my body composition was any particularly better than anyone else's, nor did I feel that way about the people around me, which kind of led me to believe that diet was actually not that powerful because here I am on what should be the best diet on earth. You know, of course, it's it has no cholesterol, it, extremely low in saturated fat and plant-based. So, you know, you would have to be on the very best diet there. And yet I didn't feel particularly healthy. I was kind of skinny fat. It was not, my health was not great. And so I, my takeaway from all that is that that yeah, diet's just really not that important. And genetics are actually a much bigger factor. And so everyone who's obese had obese parents and everyone who has type 2 diabetes had type 2 diabetic parents. And so I I left medical school with this this feeling that it's really mostly genetic and uh, diet is not that powerful. And that's kind of what we were taught as well, actually. Mm-hmm. But then now that you've done a total 180. <laughs> now I've done total 180. What, what I realized right off the bat when I got out into the real world is that there's this massive gradient in health between the the sickest people I saw and the healthiest people I saw, and you could really trace it all back to diet and exercise, uh, or most of it. I mean, that's just a huge, huge differences between uh, people with healthy diet and exercise practices and people with unhealthy diet and exercise practices. That explains the vast majority of these this giant gradient we see between really healthy people and really unhealthy people. And so I've just been obsessed with what are the exact differences between diet and exercise in these groups of people, the healthiest people I'm seeing and the sickest people I'm seeing? Mm. Right. I definitely want to get into that. Just, I'm very fascinated though about your take since you were plant-based for a while and that's such a kind of fad right now. Do you think that some people can really thrive on that if they balance their macronutrients properly? Or do you think it's really necessary to have adequate animal protein or eggs at least? Oh, I think that you could be uh, optimally healthy as a total vegan, but it's mm-hmm. it's really a little bit tricky. You have to know exactly what you're doing and go out of your way to supplement. And uh, uh, you can't just eat a, a junk food vegan diet and uh, be anywhere close to optimally healthy. So it can definitely be done. It is possible. I don't think it's optimal for most people, but it's definitely possible. No mm-hmm. question. How did you feel different once you reintroduced meat? 
Oh, wow. Well, I, you know, I, I've found, I have personally found that by prioritizing protein and uh, minimizing at least refined carbohydrates, my body composition is way better and I have way less, I will call it glucose dependence. I think one of the biggest things for me is, is how much hypoglycemia I used to have. What I would uh, almost daily, you know, eat some sort of high carb, low fat breakfast. And a couple hours later, I would just get so shaky. I thought I was going to die unless I could eat something. So I was incredibly dependent on carbohydrates. And I had this very brutal hypoglycemia all the time um, on that diet. And I really, uh, I really think that that was basically just not enough protein, way too many refined carbs, way too much uh, glycemic excursions. And uh, I think a lot of people are susceptible to um, that kind of blood sugar fluctuations. And it really makes them eat more and it makes them uh, dependent on glucose, you know, multiple times a day. Mm, right. Yeah. I used to teach high school, as I mentioned to you, high school English and the PE coaches or teachers showed the kids what the health, that documentary about going plant-based or vegan, maybe. I don't know. I haven't seen it, but oh, yeah. then it was just all the kids. It was a all boys school. So then all of them were saying, I'm going plant-based, you know, I'm not eating any more meat ever again. And it was just it was interesting to watch because they were so swayed by it, but then a lot of them were athletes and they were not at all doing what you're talking about of, you know, getting enough protein or being sure to balance macronutrients. Um, but it was just interesting to watch because it became really kind of like the thing to do and they were just exhausted and they were eating a lot of junk food because there is a way I think to be healthy vegetarian and not bring in all of the junk food in the same way with, you know, if you're eating animal products, there's like the junk food way to do it and the not junk food way. But yeah, it was just really, I, I was thinking about that as you were talking that I have some friends who don't eat meat and they're, you know, very judicious about getting enough protein and supplementing. So I do think it takes that extra caution, but I don't think that's really talked about as much as it should be of kind of like the way to do it properly. Right, right. Well, honestly, I feel very strongly that even even looking at it from a plant versus animal point of view is just this huge false dichotomy, this huge smokescreen that just makes it all confu- more confusing for everyone. Like we already don't understand nutrition. And then when you artificially separate it into just plants and animals, this is this really bad fake dichotomy that nobody needs to have and it just muddies the waters for what the heck anyone should be eating to begin with so yeah I have some problems with it yeah that's a really that's an interesting way to talk about it so let's really dive in then to your recommendations um I was just you know looking more at your book and it says that it's the simplest and most practical diet and exercise book ever written, which I think is incredible because as you said, most of us struggle with nutrition and, you know, what do we eat? How do we exercise? So I love that it's simple and practical. So what are your dietary pattern recommendations that most people should be following most of the time? Got it. Okay. So I I kind of divided your entire diet or or what eating actually is into the things that plants are doing to create all the food for animals. So plants create all food for all animals, right? Animals, plants make their own food and then animals eat other living organisms, either plants or animals that ate plants. So plants literally make all food for all animals and plants are doing two specific things to make food for every animal on earth. They are absorbing minerals from soil, nitrogen most prominently, and and about a dozen other minerals. And then they are performing photosynthesis where they're taking solar energy and converting it into chains of carbons and hydrogens um, using carbon dioxide and water. And these chains of carbons that we use for energy are either fats or carbohydrates. 
So your plant is doing two things. They're just basically sequestering solar energy as chemical energy in the form of carbs and fats. And then they're absorbing minerals, especially nitrogen, to make protein from the soil. So when you eat plants or when you eat an animal that's eating other plants, you're basically collecting energy, which is carbs and fats, or protein and minerals, which came from soil. So I, I've kind of divided the entire... Um, your entire diet into protein versus energy, where protein is basically nitrogen and minerals from soil and energy is carbs and fats. And if you look at your diet from a protein to energy standpoint, um, you, you realize that basically animals eat until they get enough protein and only then do they stop eating. And the amount of energy they consume scales up and down dramatically uh, based on the protein percentage of the food. And so we can do some really interesting things with protein percentages, like you can uh, create an obesogenic rodent chow for your lab rats or mice that has a very low protein percentage and very high carbs and fats mixed together. And uh, on the other hand, you so you can maximally fatten these lab rodents with a 10% protein diet, for example, and then you can make them as thin as possible with a 50% protein diet where they're literally just going to stop eating way sooner. Mm-hmm. So w- w- what I see in, in modern society is all of this protein dilution where we've figured out how to create refined carbs and refined fats, which is pure dietary energy without any satiety. And then we've dumped it into the food supply. And so now everyone has to overeat all these refined carbs and refined fats to get enough protein to not be hungry and to stop eating. So for that reason, my number one recommendation to everybody is protein. It's just, you know, every time, every meal should be centered around protein. Every snack should be centered around protein. You should build your whole diet around getting enough protein. And then you can kind of worry about the energy side on the back end of that. Once you've eaten enough protein and minerals to not be hungry, um, the amount of carbs and fats you eat might scale up or down just depending on your activity level and how hungry you are. But you have a lot easier time of gauging how hungry you are and how much energy you need to eat after you've already hit this protein target that you need for protein satiety. So the whole point of the book is really just targeting protein up front and focusing on protein to make sure you hit your protein satiety uh, and then backfill any energy needs, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. Uh, you even said the words prioritize protein earlier. And it's funny because in the group program I run, the first unit is called prioritize protein. And the majority of people report back that they were definitely not eating enough protein. I actually don't think one person has ever said they were eating enough protein. Do you find that, do you, do you find that to be true with your patients as well? Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy. Well, if you, if you have, I have patients do, you know, 24 hour dietary recall or keep a food log. And when we go back and look, they're always eating enough protein to, you know, basically be alive. Mm-hmm. but just barely. And then how much carbs and fats do they have to eat to get that protein? It's usually way too high. It's usually enough to keep them weight stable at their over fat body percentage, but not enough protein um, and too much carbs and fats to keep them weight stable at a lower body fat. Mm. So yeah, everyone's eating enough protein to be alive. Sure. <laughs> but just barely. And they have to overeat carbs and fats to get there. And they might not be be eating enough to have satiety at a much lower body fat, if you know what I mean. Their protein percent is just not high enough. So yeah, I I agree with what you're saying. I would say most people are just not eating enough protein. Absolutely not. What is your recommendation for how much protein people should be eating? Let's say first the person who wants to lose 20 pounds and then the person who just wants to maintain their weight. My advice to everybody is extremely simple. It's target a gram per pound of your ideal body weight or your reference body weight or what you should weigh for your height. You know, if you Mm. just look up how much should you weigh for your height, 
uh, a gram per pound is kind of perfect for for most people. I mean, you know, there's a lot of wiggle room there, but that's a really good ballpark. Okay, I like that. Again, very simple, straightforward. Love that. Uh, which is, I mean, I have had some women in my group who have said they were only eating maybe 30 grams of protein a day. And, right. I mean, that's just so, so, so low. So just even at doubling that at first, they feel incredible and they feel full longer. Um, so that's a lot more protein that I'm sure most people who are listening to this are eating. How do you recommend getting that into your daily life? Well, I really think the best strategy is just building every meal around a protein and every snack around a protein, you know, so you, 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 my favorite is high quality, properly raised animal products, you know, like grass fed beef and wild caught fish and seafood, um, and pastured eggs and, uh, things like that, you know, low fat dairy, uh, fermented dairy, like uh, Greek yogurt and cottage cheese. These are all phenomenal. So my, my favorites are these sorts of things, grass fed ruminant, wild caught fish and seafood, um, fermented, uh, low fat dairy, like cottage cheese and yogurt. Uh, and so you, you go out of your way to target all of these. And then if you're still starving because you ran a marathon, you can just eat a bunch of carbs and fats on the back end of that. But at least now you have a fighting chance of stopping eating before you overeat non-protein energy because you've hit this protein target, if you know what I mean. Yeah, really, I noticed for myself, it comes down to you're just not as hungry for the carbs and the fat because you actually feel full. So it's just such a good moderator of how much you're, how much food you're eating I think when you get enough protein. Absolutely, absolutely. It's just so crucial. You said low fat dairy, so I'm interested in that cuz I see different recommendations, eat full fat, low fat, same with meat. What's your kind of approach towards fat? Should we be lessening or upping our intake? Well, it kind of depends on what your goals are and what your body composition is currently. I would say, you know, now that 91% of Americans are over fat. You're really trying to prioritize the protein. So my preference for most people is a lower fat dairy, because to be perfectly honest, a uh, high fat dairy, especially refined dairy fat is just not that great for body composition, butter, heavy cream, uh, cream cheese, sour cream, all the really high fat um, refined dairy is probably not helping anybody get to where they want to be. Mm. So is um, it, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say like, uh, I would say a full fat milk fermented dairy, like yogurt or cottage cheese is fine. Uh, if, but you know, if you get a lower fat version, you're probably gonna, uh, lose weight even faster. Although it's, it's it's kind of on a U-shaped curve. If you try to shape all your fat down to zero, you're going to absolutely fail. You can't eat 100% protein. Um, but at the same time, if, if you're eating way too high of fat when it comes to dairy, like your butter and your heavy cream and your uh, uh, full fat cheese, that's probably going to leave you fatter than you want to be. So the answer is somewhere in between, and you can always tweak it a little bit by getting a slightly lower fat, this or that, or a slightly higher fat, something else, and kind of find out where you need to be. The whole point of the PE diet is you're just um, incrementally going up or down on PE ratio based on your on your goals. Mm, interesting. Yeah, so cooking with a little bit of butter as opposed to throwing whole sticks of butter in your coffee or, you know, there's all these extremes happening. So right. I think... Yeah, I don't know that that would make me feel good in general, but some people <laughs> out there are really zealots about the high fat stuff. But no, I like your kind of moderate approach. Uh, for carbs, what do you recommend? I mean, there's this carb phobic society as well. So you've mentioned carbs a couple of times. And obviously, if you're prioritizing protein, you're not going to eat as much carbs as you would otherwise. But what do you recommend? So uh, for most people, so this, I wrote this crazy book called The PE Diet, and we're definitely not recommending zero carb uh, diets at all. Um, mm -hmm. But it is way lower than the standard American diet, which is like 300 grams of carbs a day. Mm. 
And it's also higher in fiber. So we're looking at net carbs and fiber is pretty much unlimited. So uh, the suggestion is that most people try to keep their net carbs under around 100 grams a day. And you could add another maybe 50 grams per hour of high intensity exercise you're doing. So if you ran a marathon, you can add more carbs in for sure. But for most people, you know, if you're if you're not doing any high intensity exercise, it would be maybe 100 grams of net carbs a day with unlimited fiber. Got it. So unlimited fruits and vegetables. Uh, right, right, right. You're basically eating all the fruits and vegetables you want. But uh, you have to watch out for things that are refined carbs. And that's your your grains and your sugars and your starches. So that's the real problem. Got it. Any recommendation as to when we should be eating or how many meals per day? Well, so, you know, I've looked at data that suggests that maybe, you know, if you look at one meal, two meals, three meals, four, five, six, probably optimal for most people is around two main meals a day. So I'm, I really do like sort of a 16, eight intermittent fast with two meals and maybe a snack. And the book is kind of built around that. The book is built around the idea that you're going to want to have a little bit of an intermittent fast, but nothing crazy. And you're going to want to have a slight decrease in meal frequency, but nothing, you know, extreme. And so I kind of like the two meals and a snack in maybe an eight hour window as a sweet spot for the average person. And then everyone can, of course, tweak that up or down. But that's my that's my general recommendation. Most people try to shrink your eating window a little bit. Um, maybe try to shave down a meal or half a meal. And I think that, again, intermittent fasting is definitely on a U-shaped curve where there's, you know, too much and too little, and there's a sweet spot that you're trying to hit. And if I just had to pick one for most people, that's what it would be. Mm -hmm. What's your approach to kind of all of the fun indulgence foods? Are you a believer in kind of the 80-20 or 90-10 eating pattern? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're, everyone is going to, you know, occasionally just eat a donut or a piece of pizza or something. And I definitely think that's fine. I like to, I don't really necessarily plan these cheats out. I sort of let them come to me at like social occasions or eating out or something like that. And, and my way of thinking about it is that it's not, I don't really want to call it a cheat food or a cheat meal or something implying that it's bad. To me, uh, you know, there's not necessarily any good or bad foods. They're just all on a spectrum of how much satiety you got for those calories. So if you just picture everything on this spectrum of satiety per calories, way, way, way up at the high end of satiety per calorie, you'd have, you know, fish and salad with low fat or non-fat dressing. I mean, that would give you insane amount of satiety for hardly any calories because it's so low in carbs and so low in fats. On the way, way lower end of the spectrum, you'd have like ice cream, which is a refined carb and refined fat mixed together. So you're going to have a lot less satiety because there's no protein and you're going to have a lot or, you know, very little protein. You're going to have a lot more energy because it's refined carb and refined fat together. So uh, my concept is you try to aim as high as you can most of the time on satiety per calorie, but occasionally you're going to eat these foods that are very low in satiety and very high in calories. And it's okay to do that a little bit um, in the book, we use kind of an 80-20 rule for everything. And I'm sure that could apply here as well. If 80% of the time you're eating this very high satiety per calorie food, your fish and salad, then 20% of the time you can probably get, in, get away with eating some even possibly abject garbage like a donut. Um, yeah, and you can get away with that. And I think that that's probably... Uh, reasonably healthy pattern. That's certainly what I do. I think that's what most people do if they're being honest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love how you talk about food in a way of what to eat and not everything you should not be eating. Um, because I <laughs> right. think that a lot of the dietary advice out there is cut out this and don't eat this and never look at bread again. And, you know, it just gets very, it feels almost sad. And, right. you know, there's such a way to go about it where, 
you talk about it in an inclusive way rather than a restrictive way. So I really like that. Um, what do you, what's your, I mean, obviously soda is not a health food, but what do you say to patients who ask you about diet soda versus regular soda versus allowing soda every once in a while? Well, okay. So, you know, when I first started uh, all of this diet stuff, I was kind of paleo and I, and I had some fears, some religious fears about, you know, gluten and artificial sweeteners and that sort of thing. And, and now that I have a lot more experience with, with actual patients, I'm, I'm honestly not afraid of artificial sweeteners at all, um, especially in a non-caloric setting. Um, I think that if you are eating artificial sweeteners with a whole bunch of carbs, it's probably slightly worse than eating nothing. But in a in a very low or no calorie setting, I'm not afraid of artificial sweeteners at all. So I actually have zero problems with diet soda. And I tell my patients and clients that they can drink all the diet soda they want. I'm actually not afraid of that at all. And I have uh, people losing tons of weight consuming artificial sweeteners and non-caloric diet soda. And I have no problem with that. And I think that's completely fine. And so I'm not, I'm no longer religious. I'm no longer uh, afraid of some of these chemicals. Uh, and I think it's totally okay. No calories, no problem. It doesn't seem to be that damaging for most people. Interesting. So then would you say baking with the artificial sweeteners causes a problem then or so when would artificial sweeteners be right well we have a couple studies that suggest that if you are eating a glycemic load like some carbs and you add artificial sweetener to that you might get a little bit more um, insulin secretion i'm not convinced even that that's a problem but i definitely um am extremely not afraid of artificial sweeteners in an, in a very lower non-caloric setting, like your diet soda type setting. Um, I think that uh, for me that it might be slightly bad if you're baking with them, but I still think it's, it's an order of magnitude better than just sugar. So, uh, you know, so you're basically getting the sweet taste without the calories. So that's probably better and it's probably okay. Mm. Have you seen any research on artificial sweeteners and gut health? Like what it can do to the microbiome? Is that something on your radar or I haven't, I've been interested in getting somebody on here to talk about that, but have you had any experience with that? Well, yeah, I've so I've seen, you know, uh, actually some literature that suggests that they negatively impact the microbiome. But to be honest, I really don't try to drive my health via my microbiome. I'm mm. I'm convinced that we're really in the dark ages on the microbiome and we really don't know how to interpret the data that we're getting. And honestly, if you look at if you look at studies on germ-free mice, which are these you know rodents with uh, no GI microbiome, right? They're they're born in a sterile environment and fed irradiated food, and they have zero uh, microorganisms in their GI tract. These these critters are doing fine. <laughs> So like I'm I'm not convinced that anything we think we know about the GI microbiome is really that helpful at this point. Like we really just don't have the RCTs to prove that the kind of changes in the microbiome we think we're seeing are really driving health at all. And I personally believe the microbiome is more of the cart and not the horse. So I'm while I've seen some data suggesting changes from artificial sweeteners, I have yet to be convinced that that is of clinical importance or is really that significant. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm wondering, you mentioned gluten as well. So you kind of had these different ideas. What did you used to think about gluten versus what you think now? Well, I used to think that gluten was probably bad for a giant chunk of the population. And, and now I've realized that uh, while there are some people who are extremely sensitive to it, and I've seen some really radical health changes in gluten um, avoidance in people with celiac, uh, most people are not affected by it at all. And um, so 
for your average person, it's not going to be a big deal. And it's probably more like the fact that the refined flour that they're eating with gluten in it uh, has a horrifically low satiety per calorie. And so you're just more seeing the effects of eating a refined carb, which is not that great, versus anything specifically bad from gluten in most people. Hmm. Aside from gluten and artificial sweeteners, have you had any other kind of changes of mind after working with patients for so many years? Well, yeah. So I, I used to be just afraid of processed food in general. And, uh, and, and now that I've, you know, worked with more people eating uh, processed protein products like whey protein and casein and, uh, you know, all the vegan plant uh, protein powders, uh, I've, I've realized that uh, processed protein doesn't seem to be a problem. Like it, it, people are doing fine on this. And it really seems to be refined carbs and refined fats that are problematic. And, and then just in my research, I've realized that basically humans are uh, designed to eat processed and cooked food. We've been doing that, uh, you know, throughout our evolution, we've been cooking and processing our food which historically has increased the nutrient density and the nutrient availability. When you, when you process meat and you butcher meat and you cook meat, you actually improve the nutrient density and the nutrient yield. And you get that when you process a lot of plant foods as well. So what I've realized is that cooking and processing food can actually make it way, way better. It can also make it worse and you have to get really specific about what processing uh, makes things worse. And that's the refinement of uh, non-protein energy, which has low satiety per calorie. Basically, your sugar and your flour and your oil, your refined carbs and your refined fats. These are the bad things. This is pretty much the cause of the entire global diabetes epidemic is refined carbs and refined fats equally. And so that's what you really have to avoid. And so as I've kind of realized, figured out exactly how it works, <clears throat> I'm less afraid of the things that I used to be afraid of when I, when I didn't know as much as I do now. Refined fats. Are you talking about refined seed oils, vegetable oils? I'm talking about any refined fat. Okay. So like throughout human, um, humans, we've always used technology to feed ourselves. So we invented agriculture as a way of concentrating um, plant energy, mostly from carbohydrates, but we domesticated animals as a way to concentrate um, energy from animals, mostly in the form of fat. So if you, if you keep animals penned up and you feed them lots of food and you protect them, they get a lot fatter than they would otherwise. And you have a lot, you've added a lot more fat, a lot more, uh, fat to your diet automatically, right? So this is, uh, almost a way of concentrating fat in the human food supply is by, um, domesticating animals. And then if you look at, you know, like if you look at bacon or something, which, which is basically we've artificially fattened one of the fattest animals on earth. And then we've specifically taken the fattest part of that animal and just eaten that. So that's basically a, <clears throat> almost a refinement of fat in the food supply. And then if you, you know, just rendered the bacon and just use the bacon fat, now you're looking at just a refined, basically a refined processed fat. And so the same thing could be said about uh, industrial seed oils, of course, which I think are even worse, but um, you've got refined animal fat as well. Um, milking cows is a, it's a technology that humans invented as a way to concentrate energy in the diet. Milk is actually extremely high in lactose for milk sugar and milk fat as well. And it's a fairly low protein food. Uh, it's designed to pump as much energy as possible into a baby cow to turn it into a giant cow as fast as possible. Um, and so we've milked cows as a way of uh, basically concentrating energy in our diet. And then we skim the fat off the top of that for your butter and your heavy cream. And that's really, really, really a couple orders of magnitude concentrating dietary energy. And so in my mind, all of these are refinements or concentrations of 
fat. And then in the plant world, it's mostly carbs, except for, I guess, industrial seed oils. And all of these are problematic and all of these contribute to the obesity epidemic versus, you know, prior to all of these 10,000 years ago in the Paleolithic, which is really only just 300 generations ago, you just went out and killed an animal and ate the whole thing. And you get mm. this perfect protein to energy ratio. When you kill an animal that was eating what it's supposed to eat and just eat the whole thing, and then maybe find some fruit or some tubers. If you look at that overall protein to energy ratio, it's really quite spectacular. And people just automatically have better health and better body composition. Mm, yeah. Wow. Really fascinating. Um, I'd love to hear before time's up your thoughts on exercise. I know that's just kind of like dropping a bomb there, just exercise. What, what do we do? But what are some of your practical, simple, approachable tips for everyone when it comes to exercise? What kind of exercise should we be doing? Gotcha. Okay. So if you look at people who uh, I like to look at extremes of lack of exercise. Like if you look at someone who laid in bed in the ICU for two weeks and almost has to learn how to walk again, or if you look at astronauts in zero G for a couple of weeks and you know they basically can't stand without someone helping them. The amount of muscle and bone you start losing if you don't put maximum tension in these structures on a regular basis is just shocking. And so uh, the the frailty and osteopenia and sarcopenia you get if you're not putting maximum tension in your bones and muscles is really disturbing. On the flip side, if you look at, you know, your super, you know, jack bodybuilders and your powerlifters and your really strong people who have tons of lean mass, what they're really doing is just putting the very highest tension they possibly can in all of their muscles on a really regular basis. The intensity is really high. The frequency is really high. Um, so in the book, what I'm recommending is people just go way out of their way to generate the absolute highest tension in their muscular change of their body, like pushing and pulling and squatting. You generate the highest tension you can possibly stand for as long as possible uh, uh, really often, like maybe daily or every other day. So the way that looks on a practical level is you do push-ups and you do absolutely perfect form push-ups. Uh, you go as high intensity as you can stand all the way to failure and beyond. And then you hold the push-up position as long as you can. And then you do a slow and negative. And then you kind of collapse on the ground. And the whole pushing exercise takes, you know, maybe 90 seconds, but you've generated this incredibly high tension in your muscles and it sends this signal to your body that it needs to be stronger. And then you literally build more muscle tissue and you get stronger, you get more lean mass, you get more mitochondria in your muscle, you get this huge benefit throughout your body. And so uh, in the book, I pretty much describe how to do a tiny little nano workout daily where you're just generating maximum tension in pulling chain with things like rows or pull-ups, pushing chain with different push-up progressions, uh, legs uh, using squats or lunges. Uh, and, and that's it's, it's really basic, but I've just distilled down what is exercise to the very tiniest, most succinct uh, factor of all, which is generating this tension. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we also recommend some sort of cardio, which is basically where instead of pushing a particular muscle group to failure, you're stressing your cardiorespiratory system as hard as you can. You're doing something like sprinting up a hill uh, or doing jump squats or something really, really high intensity where you're basically going to fail because you're so outwinded and short of breath. And so you want to push both of these systems in your body on a regular basis, this max effort tension in your muscles, and then this sort of cardiorespiratory max effort as well. And, and as long as you're doing that with a high enough intensity and a high enough frequency, the amount of actual time you have to spend is tiny. You know, I basically never work out more than 15 minutes a day um ever and but the intensity is super high and it's very regular mm. that's music to my ears that i don't work out more than 15 minutes a day because i'm not a huge fan of the you know 45 minutes on the elliptical or 
you know, it's just, I think, especially how you just described it, that's just kind of a waste of time. Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, well, really fascinating. Appreciate all of your insights today. Uh, I ask each of my guests the final question, which is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? Wow. The, well, <laughs> so personally, I, I really strongly believe that you never just own good health. You basically, health is not owned, it's rented and the rent is due every day. So every single day you have to be putting some sort of investment into this health bank and it's, you know, diet and exercise are the two sides of the coin. And for exercise, it's maximum uh, tension in muscles, maximum effort uh, in your cardiorespiratory system. On the diet side, it's really prioritizing the hell out of protein and minerals to try to maximize satiety per calorie. So to me, that's what it's all about. It's every day doing these little tiny things to optimize your health. Uh, the protein energy ratio on the diet side, the maximum effort on resistance and cardio on the exercise side. Wow. I love that. The idea that it's rented and you have to pay rent every day. I wrote that down and I will be quoting you eventually. So <laughs> stay tuned. All right, cool. Well, I so enjoyed talking to you and where can listeners follow and find you? You've mentioned your book. I'll definitely link the PE diet in the show notes. Um, but where are you active on social media? Well, I'm mostly on Twitter at Ted Naiman. Um, that's the best place to find me. And really my, my, my best piece of content is the book, the PE diet, which you can get at the PE or pretty much anywhere books are sold online, like uh, Amazon. Awesome. I was thinking when we were talking about how little time you have with patients and just, you know, doctors struggle with that, how cool it must be to be able to not be able to say everything you say in your book, but to say everything I want to tell you is in this book. Oh, yeah. I, I just give out free, free uh, PDF download of my book to any patient who's even remotely interested in it. I'm like, please just read this because I don't have time to <laughs> explain right. it all to you. No, but that's so cool. And then they can come and have you as the actual source to ask questions. That's that's really awesome for your patients. I really was selfish when I wrote the book. It was just to make my day job easier. That was the <laughs> primary reason. I love that. I love it. And, you know, how can I make exercise you know take as little time and get the max benefit my day, my day job it seems like you're all about efficiency i love that yeah i try thank you awesome well really enjoyed talking to you grateful for your time and i look forward to staying connected great thank you well that's all for today thanks again for joining me here on the health investment podcast i'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners on your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.